Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Greetings, everyone, wherever you're tuning in from around the planet. Welcome to Global Minnesota's Great Conversation. Today, we will be looking at the topic of the Persian Gulf security, and we'll be hearing from experts who will bring you very, very important and direct personal information and a big picture all at the same time. My name is Mark Ritchie, and I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota. It's my privilege to be host for today's great conversation. We are able to provide these programs globally, because of the members who contribute and keep our organization alive and healthy. Thank you to all our members and all who supported our gala this last week. We also are grateful to our sponsors, um, agencies, companies, nonprofits, other organizations. And we partner with a number of institutions in our community during other times when we're able to meet in person we're often holding these great conversations in the Minneapolis Central Library. We partner there with the friends of the Hennepin County Library. Also at the Landmark Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. We partner this program with the Foreign Policy Association. It's a 100 year old US organization that each year focuses our attention on half dozen or perhaps a few more important global international policy questions. Great decisions, conversations take place across the state and we're partnering with them in our area here often with the friends of the Edina Library, Washburn Library, Plymouth and others, including the Edina Senior Center. So these conversations are designed to help us advance our mission, which is advancing international uh, understanding and engagement. We're interested in knowing more, but being more engaged. And it's our way of being faithful to the 70 year old tradition of our organization, our mission, if you like, connecting Minnesotans to the world and the world to Minnesota. Today, we'll be hearing from two experts followed by discussion and question and answers. Uh, some of you are watching by YouTube uh, channel as live streaming. And there's a, a email there for questions. If you would like to email those in, just questions at globalminnesota.org. Today, the two experts will bring us their perspective from their work. Uh, Colonel Patricia Baker, is a career military officer with our Minnesota National Guard, more than 29 years of service, including two combat tours in Iraq. Uh, her first back in the uh, beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom in March of 2003 through March of 2004, and uh, returned in September 2008 through 2009. Uh, she's a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, among many other things, and she was responsible um, in both of those missions for the care and transport of our uh, U.S. ambassador, uh, making sure on all matters, uh, security and all others. Those flights included our and friends and allies and other diplomats, and so she was responsible for all of those parts of that element of Persian Gulf security. Uh, currently, she's the chief financial and property officer of the Minnesota 
National Guard and uh, works with our uh, State uh, Guard Association with the Minnesota National Guard of Army units and our Air Guard. She has a bachelor's degree in aviation from University of North Dakota, a master's in science and management from Marquette University in Wisconsin, and a doctorate in education from the University of Minnesota, my alma mater as well. She's a Black Hawk pilot, as I mentioned, uh, U.S. Army War College graduate in 2019, and um, diplomacy of Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy graduate as well. Professor John Ratson is a professor at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Uh, we're here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Teaches comparative counterterrorism, constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure, and national security. He's a former federal prosecutor and former assistant general counsel at the Central Intelligence Agency. His experience is long and deep in our nation's intelligence community, giving him unique perspective in the larger legal questions in the legal academy. He's a, a pro prolific writer and pu is published in uh, law journals and reviews all over the country. He's taught in places as wide and spread as Russia and Chile and Kazakhstan and England and Turkmenistan and Ireland and Turkey and Uzbekistan. He's had the opportunity also to be part of uh, special initiatives in the private sector, the Iran Commercial Ground and the American Iranian Council. These are uh, elements of his experience in the private sector as well. He's graduated with honors from Duke University and Harvard Law School. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Radson and Colonel Baker to join me here on the Zoom screen. Thank you again for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you be part of this today's webinar. Uh, Colonel Baker, let's begin with you with your overview comments. Thank you again. Thank you for the invite, uh, President Ritchie. Uh, and, and good afternoon to the professor, Professor Radson as well. I'm glad to be a part of this panel today and, and get the chance to speak on my perspective when it comes to this important part of the world that I've invested almost half of my career in. Uh, first and foremost, if Carolina could turn on that first slide and, and let's get to the visual part of this introduction. Excellent. This is the very Spartan Iraqi landscape that was the airfield at Tikrit. Tikrit used to be Saddam's summer palace and it happened to be where I was located for my first combat tour of duty in Iraq. This was the very beginning of the war. And we came in under the auspices that there would be this real resistance and that, that we'd be crossing the border and entering the war fight. And the first few months, that's just not how it unfolded for those of us that were assigned with the 4th Infantry Division. My particular role as the command and control flight helicopter unit commander was to ensure that strategic leaders were flown across the entire landscape of the Iraqi battle space. Those strategic leaders included military officers of the highest rank. It included uh, the ambassador and his diplomats that were stationed both at the embassy in Baghdad, but elsewhere within the, the Iraqi uh, area of operations. There were also some distinguished visitors, some USO celebrities, and of course, um, journalists and other VIPs. Next slide, please. 
when we're looking at, at, at Iraq as an entire country and, and what those of us that were in the military at the time that we first entered Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, this is a visual way to see what we saw through our windscreens that were cracked by the summer heat in Iraq. On the left is a typical flight if you were in the northern, more rolling, more agriculturally inclined portion of the Iraqi um, battle space. And to the right is actually one of my airframes flying away from the diplomatic helipad, crossing uh, the entirety of Baghdad and, and making our way through the country with these important people on board. Next slide, please. Although we were flying the highest ranking people in country and the most important uh, diplomats and, and journalists that came through, the, the environment itself was very austere. And there were missions where we, we were asked to do things that were extremely difficult under very austere conditions. And, and on the right, you can see, we quite literally lived in tents for eight months. It was, it was a tough first year in country. It was very difficult on, on all of us that were asked to go in at the very beginning and, and become the occupation force of the US within the footprint of Iraq. Next, please. It was an, it, it was an incredible um, immersion in, in what Iraq as a country was like from the extreme Southwest desert area of the country. You can see on this left photo, just how uh, a desert like the moon dust was, it was encompassing as well as the heat. And you can see that we were, we were really in some, some trying conditions, both good days and the bad days. Last slide, please. I had the, the, the outrageous fortune of being assigned to the 4th Infantry Division. And there were some milestone moments, absolutely um, lifelong remembrance sort of moments to this first year uh, in Iraq. And I, I happened to be eight miles away when on the 13th of December, 2003, the 4th Infantry Division handed over Saddam Hussein and he was whisked away by special operators put into occlusion in Baghdad until he was then tried and executed. There were milestone days like interacting General Abizade as he was describing to me how profoundly this would change uh, the American military and our approach in the East. There were some milestone days where there were journalists and USO celebrities that had to be flown Baghdad to the outer, outer reaches close to the Iranian border. And all of this was the very first tour and my very first experience with, um, with the Iraq war. I would, I would make this uh, very clear for your audience. I was there at the very, very beginning in 2003 and had the opportunity to gain some real strategic perspective in my second term which was 2008 to 2009, when I was the flight crew assigned to Ambassador Kirk and that timeframe that we were navigating the status of forces agreement. But I'm, I'm gonna take this opportunity to break. Uh, I, I appreciate being invited to the panel today. 
And Mr. Ritchie, if we could move on to our, our second panelist. Thank you, Colonel Baker. And we'll come back to that perspective that you develop having those two opportunities um, when we get to a question. Professor Radson. Thank you, Mark. Thank you to Global Minnesota. I have always enjoyed cooperating with your organization. I remember a conversation that I had in 2002. I was new to the Central Intelligence Agency. I was in the general counsel's office. I felt that I needed to tell some of the people on the operational side about my contacts with Iranians. Those contacts have been discussed in my security clearance, but they didn't know much about that. There was a moment in the conversation when I was talking to the head of the Iran task force and I said, well, you all must know this stuff. She looked at me and she said, you have to remember, it takes a long time for us to train people that are not Iranian to learn or to understand what you understand. So it may not come through in an introduction or on my resume, but I have been living and breathing Iran since I was born. Both my parents are from Iran. They immigrated in 1962 at the beginning of the year. I was born at the end of the year. And I tell you that because it is a study through conversations, books, courses, experiences. And I feel that I have more of an interest, more of a connection on US-Iran relations than anything else. And I'm proud, I've straddled different experiences. My uncle was the minister of natural gas, which was a division that was broken off from the National Iranian Oil Company. He ran refinery projects. He had to leave the country during the revolution. So he was high up in the Shah's government. Through my work with various non-governmental organizations, I became friends with an Ayatollah that was one of the mentors to Ayatollah Khomeini, who was instrumental in the Iranian revolution. So this is to give you an idea of the kind of balance that has been my life between the old guard and the new guard in Iran. Uh, behind me, I think you can see on the board, I have some notes. Let me get my head out of the way. And that's the organizing principle for my remarks today. I, I like to put that out there because anytime that I'm listening, I get restless and I want to know when is this person going to stop? So when we get to this item here on the board, I'm going full circle to Iran, that will be the stopping point. And then we can go into a dialogue, questions, uh, a back and forth between Colonel Baker and me. So the first uh, idea that I have would be to look at the history of the Persian Gulf. The Persian Gulf is our topic today. I'm going to put out two lessons. One is maybe more positive than the other. The first lesson is that I think after 9-11, what we were doing in Afghanistan was very much consistent with American interests. It was consistent with what the world expected us to do. The Al-Qaeda plot was launched, rehearsed, supported by the Taliban, allowing Al-Qaeda to be in Afghanistan. It was clear that we needed to do something to root out the problem that existed in Afghanistan. We were doing remarkably well in Afghanistan from the end of 01 until about 2003. That, that was an exceptional time in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. If you recall, 
there was then a pivot of resources and attention from Afghanistan to another part of the world. I have great respect for everybody that has served our country that has been in harm's way. So I am saying this consistent with that admiration that I have for Colonel Baker's work. I, however, I'm going to propose to all of you that the Iraq invasion and then our attempt to bring order and democracy was to borrow the title of an, a book about our experience there was a fiasco. It was a great waste of American lives, resources and treasure. I would put to our group this question, do we think that we are better off today than we were at the beginning of 2003 when we started the conflict to remove Saddam Hussein? If you remember back then we had no fly zones. Iraq was not such a problem in the region. To be clear, Saddam Hussein was a problem for his people. There are other leaders that are a problem for their people, but I am proposing to you all that we have not made much progress for the Iraqi people or for ourselves. And maybe I'm overstating it, but I want to lay out that duality between what we were doing in Afghanistan, which made sense to me, and what we did in Iraq, which didn't make sense. So that's the first idea of historical lessons. The second idea that I have for our conversation is, why do we even have an interest in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf? What, what is the source of this interest? In Global Minnesota this year, we had a book that asked the various groups, chapters to go into depth on this. And I'm borrowing from some of the conversations that we had with those groups through Global Minnesota. One explanation may be that it is a kind of old time sake, that many of us were educated in a time where the Middle East had conflicts. We had the 1948 war, 56 war, 67, 73. We were used to conflicts that drew in the United States. We understood that this region was important to the British and the French. We wanted to show that we were not bumpkins, that we understood geopolitics in our schools, in our training centers for the military and the intelligence community, we continue this tradition of studying the Middle East. Often we didn't, we didn't question why does this region matter than other regions? We did it. Maybe related to that is then it became an area where educated people could show off their knowledge about a very complicated part of the world. I'm sure everybody in this audience can explain the difference between Sunnis and Shiites, the difference between Kurds and Turks, Persians, Arabs, various ethnic groups in the region. And I think that provides us some satisfaction, maybe even entertainment, but that really is not a justification to continue devoting resources. So then maybe the third idea about interest would be, well, what, what does this region have that others don't? And we can identify oil and natural gas we can talk about our relationship with a very important ally, Israel. There is the problem of terrorism that seems to have been quelled, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or other groups. They don't have the global scope. Or as we saw more recently, the transportation hub is very important there. We're worried about the Straits of Hormuz, where much of the world's oil goes through. And we learned that when the Suez Canal is shut down for any reason, it causes economic harm. So I put those forward, maybe, maybe there is some reason for American interest. The last idea I have is if 
if we accept that this region is important, if we accept some of the lessons of the past, what, what is the way to go about improving our national interest as it relates to the Middle East? And if you all recall, there was a time before the pandemic. And in that period, at the beginning of 2020, we thought we were going to war. I had many of my friends sending me sympathetic notes. They were worried that we're going to be back in a conflict with Iran. We killed a very important general in the Revolutionary Guards for Iran. This was done in Iraq. We were concerned about the extent of the Iranian retaliation and what Trump would do to retaliate for the retaliation. That didn't lead to a conflict. We haven't been hit even on the anniversary of the Soleimani assassination. We weren't hit in the United States. So maybe, maybe we were able to exert force against the Iranians without consequences. The Iranians have damaged Saudi facilities. There weren't many consequences on them. There's the war in Yemen that's winding down. Many of us see that as a proxy battle for the Saudis and the Iranians. That continues to be a concern, but it's not as much of a concern as it was a year ago or two years ago. Pro probably the most important part of the dynamic, and this is why at the end of my remarks, I don't think we can ignore the Middle East. I don't think that we can ignore Iran. If Iran pursues nuclear weapons, that will destabilize the region. That will be unacceptable to Israel. It will be unacceptable to Saudi Arabia, Egypt. There may be a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And I don't believe that any of us would want that outcome. And then the question I think for our discussion is what do we think with the new leader in Iran that was selected, Mr. Raisi, who is now the president of Iran? Is this a good development for the possibility of a deal? Do the Iranians realistically want to give up nuclear weapons? Is there anything that we can offer them for them not to pursue nuclear weapons? I think that's a very good question for our discussion to continue today. And I will go full circle in reminding you all how much trouble Iran has caused. From 1978 with the hostage crisis until the present time, I challenge anyone in the audience to find a country in the Persian Gulf that has caused more trouble than Iran. The moral of the story is that Iran is a troublemaker and your second panelist is a possible troublemaker. Thank you, Professor Radson. And thank you again to both of you for joining us here today. I, um, I wanna uh, jump back. Uh, Colonel Baker uh, gave us a picture of these two different times when she was serving there, leading there, um, and uh, touch on that aspect of the change that you saw and how you see that as part of this longer term. Uh, Professor Radson moved us into some of that longer term thinking. So Colonel Baker, what, what were those differences and what did they make you imagine over time will be some of the impact of that direct intervention. Absolutely. When we first came into country, we were just astonished that flying from airfield to airfield and location to location, that the Iraqi army essentially just laid down their arms and they were hiding out. They'd melted into the countryside. So this big, uh, this, this big war fight that, that 
division after division had been briefed and expected and planned for in March of 2003 just did not come to pass at first, at first. A few months went by and exactly the, the insurgency that the professor alluded to started to, it started to take hold and, and it started to take hold in Iraq in each of the areas that we had division size battle space assigned to geographically. In the 4th Infantry Division, it was a very quiet April, May, and June of 2003. And then in July, all of a sudden, things went from being very sedate, very calm with regard to security and our, our, our area of operations, to picking up and being kinetic. And it wasn't the uniformed force that we expected to meet. It wasn't the uniformed force at all. And that, that insurgency started to take hold and we saw small skirmishes turn into bigger battles and bigger battles turned into battle campaigns. And then we were operating across divisional lines, which took us geographically across large swaths of the Iraqi um, countryside. And that mounted and grew from July through December. So on the security front, we saw the landscape change markedly that first year in country. And I can, I can certainly attest to once Saddam Hussein was caught, captured, jailed, deposed, um, the kinetic nature of what we were asked to do militarily. We didn't win the war. So catching Saddam only made the news. The insurgency was there and they were there to stay and we knew it. Mark, you're muted. Thank you. I was gonna say in, there's a very extended interview with you on the website of the Military Historical Society of Minnesota's website under exhibits, under post 9-11. And um, you talked very eloquently about that difference that you saw in your second tour leading the uh, security for our ambassador transportation there. Can you give us just a touch of what that, uh, that part of your experience has been? Mark, the, the difference between 2003 and going back into the same countryside, the same country five years later was so stark. Second tour, flying into and through the same areas from the Southwest border all the way into uh, the vicinity of Balad, the lights were on at the farms, the villages, the small towns, the lights were on. There were people, locals driving the county roads, the village streets, and, and you could see the markets had sprung back up and the, 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 the towns and villages were lively in a way that they were not in 2003. You could see that those projects, especially the ones driven by uh, the State Department had taken hold and there were improvements to each of these towns and villages that we would see on a daily basis. 
It's also the difference between uh, the first tour and the, the second tour in 2008 to go an entire year and not a single time from a security standpoint uh, be uh, threatened either with uh, uh, small arms or other larger munitions. Starkly different five years later. Mark, could I make a comment please, about please do. point on, on the insurgency? I understand maybe there's a question you have my way, but I can't resist. Around 2003, we, we had won the first part of the war. We had taken out Saddam Hussein. We were chasing down his sons. That part of it looked good. We then on the ground understood that there's going to be a problem with Sunni extremists, with Iraqi military. And the question was, what do we do about this? I'm borrowing from the reporting in the New Yorker and other places. I'm not speaking from my government experience for obvious reasons. And this is to illustrate this disconnect between people in the field, including Colonel Baker and the people back in Washington and headquarters. So at this time, according to the New York Times, the chief of station, this is the most senior person in Iraq who has been in some of the toughest locations, knows the language, knows the country. He can see this problem brewing. He wants to inform the senior leadership, including the president, that we can, we have a problem, but we can do something about it. At this time, he's not even allowed to use that word that Colonel Baker used, insurgency. You're not allowed to do it. His senior officers in the CIA said the best way to do it is to have him speak directly to the president, George W. Bush. They flew him, military flights, very little rest, tidied him up. He goes into the Oval Office to explain, we've got a problem and I have a solution. And I'm the person that's there in Baghdad. I'm worried about getting killed and my people getting killed. And this is the, reported in other places too. W, our president, and I have some disrespect for all presidents, Democratic, uh, Democratic and Republican, but W just looked and didn't know what to make of this. Heard him out, didn't say much, the CIA, senior officer left and then W turned jokingly to his advisors and said, what's his problem? Is he a Democrat? And you can see this, this tension between those that really know they're doing, doing the policy and those that are back at headquarters or back at the senior levels of government that often don't know what they're doing. I mean, we're, we're taught to revere the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the Director of Central Intelligence, or the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency now. And I'm telling all of your nice viewers that they should have a lot more suspicion about those senior people and a lot more admiration for people that are not necessarily at the top, but have done things that are significant in the field, including Colonel Baker. It seems like both of you were deeply engaged at that time in really different places with really different bird's eye views on particular things. Colonel Baker, I'm wondering how those experiences impacted you as a person, as a leader, as a now nearly 30 year um, leader in our uh, National Guard and our armed forces. Mark, I, I would use a conversation that I had sitting on a bombed out airfield in the middle of a very hot 
Iraqi summer to kind of illustrate exactly that. I was flying General Abizade that day and General Abizade just happened to be the one true, um, we'll, we'll call him a, a, a senior military officer with expertise in the, middle, in the Middle East. And he was in the back, we were sitting on the ramp. There's bomb craters in the airfield around us, shattered glass in the, the air control tower. And we had to wait to pick up another uh, high-ranking officer. And over the headset, he just chimes in and starts talking to an air crew, which was myself as a captain, couple of enlisted crew chiefs and another pilot. And he said, Iraq will change everything. The whole, this will change everything. This will have tentacles. This will be far reaching. It, it won't merely just change those of us in, in the service, but it, it will impact us as Americans and, and how, our standing in the world. And 18 years later, I'm still reflecting on how prophetic and how profound his words were that day. 110 degrees, sitting in a military helicopter on a bombed out airfield ramp. This will change everything. And it did. And when you're talking to younger, newer members of the Minnesota Air Guard, National Guard, or the Army National Guard, and they ask you about your experience, what all, what do you share with that next generation who, in a sense, will be the ones uh, absorbing some of that change and reflecting that change over, over time? I try to convey a, a sense of uh, knowing where you are in history. So for those of us that, that have uh, a, a little more mature perspective on, on our service and the service of those that came before us and those who will come after us, we have to not be myopic when we look at the Middle East compared to other times in history where we've been in the Middle East, we've been in Southeast Asia, we've been on the European continent, we've been in so many parts of the globe that, that I try to remind young officers especially, be mindful of where you are in this moment in history. But don't let the, the hundreds of years of, of, of the rest of military history um, be lost on you. Do not get wrapped up. Be mindful of where you are in history. Professor Ratson, you were seeing a lot of this mega change, experience things happening. And over the years, you've talked to younger officers coming into the CIA or uh, maybe coming into the legal part of our national security. What, what do you, how do you talk about the part of your story that you think will give them perspective, but also uh, inspiration and energy for making change? I tell them that it's probably only in the United States that somebody who is the son of two immigrants from a country that ended up being our number one adversary for many years 
It's only the United States that I could work in the United States government to work at a senior at the Justice Department or the CIA to have the kind of opportunities. That, that's something that's still special about our country in giving opportunities to immigrants. I'm, I'm at a low level. I remember when Barack Obama was elected president, I would watch the news coverage in Spain and France, other places. They were discussing themselves. They said, could this have happened? Obama, who had a father that was from Kenya, who was not part of the elite, could he have risen to the equivalent of president of the United States in England, France, or these places? No. So that, that's the optimism I have in telling anyone that wants to serve, you know, serve government that you have an opportunity that may not exist in other places. We're doing as much as we can to recruit people that have not come from privileged backgrounds, that have a richness and a diversity to their experiences. And maybe the, se the second reminder is not to treat these institutions as static or abstractions, is that they are a collection of human beings, whether it's the FBI, the Justice Department, the CIA. If we want them to improve, it's often better for those that are young enough that have the opportunity to go in there and serve and to do their best case by case, project by project to make the institution a better place. I'll just close with one anecdote. I'm here in academia. Most of my colleagues are left of center. I consider myself completely moderate and reasonable, but I, I recognize maybe not everyone, everyone agrees. So we had a research assistant and he wanted to go work for the FBI after he got his law degree. And one of the professors said that would be beneath him. This is somebody that writes about the criminal justice system. And I said to him, I said, don't you want somebody that you've trained to go into the FBI and make it a better place? And the silence was probably the best answer I was going to get from my colleague. And this same research assistant ended up serving as an army JAG, Judge Advocate General in Iraq, and he's now working in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And he has one one parent that's from Korea. So his father met his mother while he was serving there. And those, those are the great kind of stories that we have in, in this country. And I wish that we would have more of them and continue them by uh, encouraging that interest in service of any kind. Well, I have the privilege of serving as the civilian aide to the Secretary of the U.S. Army for Minnesota. And of course, that has several different parts of that role. But the one that we always emphasize is recruitment, 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 meaning communicating, especially to our young people, men and women, all from all sorts of stations of life. And that message that both of you shared, just in terms of, you know, what it is to be in service, whether it's a military service or national security, or maybe it's, I served as Secretary of State and, and other things. What do you think is the way for the way that, let's say, Iraq, Iran, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf is communicated through the mass media in the United States, what are the elements where we could impact that in a way that young people, you know, high school or maybe in law school, but wherever they might find themselves say, you know, I can be of service. There are things that I can do in public service and, and, and really um, see that as a, an option and have their parents also see that. Is there, there's some way we could um, make the communications 
about those opportunities more clear and more present to young people. You know, I'm thinking Minnesota, of course, but all over the planet, wherever, wherever young people are considering their path for the future. I don't know if that's to me or to Colonel Baker. How would you like Both to do Both of it? you. Yeah. Baker, go ahead. Yeah. The when I'm when I'm thinking about it from uh, uh, building the legacy, bringing in another generation. One of the things when I when I reflect on media portrayal is that I, I I've always struggled with how the Middle East was portrayed, especially when uh, it it's a third second clip with very little context, and it tends to show the absolute worst circumstances in a country that's twice the size of Idaho. So take a 30 second clip and portray an entire region of the world to 300 plus million Americans. It's not enough. It's woefully insufficient to actually encapsulate what anybody asked to serve in that region is really doing. What, what I would hope for is the perspective that the professor and I are adding today with a true magnitude of what you can do as a civil servant, um, that that would be portrayed in a biographical way to those that would potentially be the next generation of servants, civil servants. Um, a, a, great, a, a great sort of um, story that I would tell is, it's not, it's not like a video game, okay? It's not door guns blazing. <laughs> it's, not, it, it's not like it's portrayed in the media or in a video game. A very typical flight for me on the diplomatic side was flying to Suleimania, which is right next to the Iranian border. And the intent would be collaborative, sort of coordinated meetings and follow on meetings with the Kurds. And then a very typical flight would be going to the diplomatic helipad, picking up the ambassador and flying to another very historic location in Iraq for consultation with local officials. That that much more so encapsulates what you are asked to do when in the government service than uh, a 30 second media clip or some war, war video game. It, it, what's portrayed is almost 180 degrees different from what we're asked to do. Mark, I, I might challenge your question. Go right ahead what we can do to get young people more interested. I think the problem is more basic. Our young people are not interested in learning about the constitution. Our young people generally are not interested in learning about international relations or history. We need to address that gap before we can even get to your specific question of how we can inform them in a better way about the Middle East. I, I'm tempted to say I'll give a prize, a cash prize to anyone listening right now who is younger than 30 years old. And that's not your fault or, or our fault. We have to do a better job of drawing young people into knowledge about their own country and the world. What, what I do, any 
student, high school or college, law student that wants to talk about a government career, I have an open door. I didn't have as many mentors because my parents were immigrants. We, to try to figure out the difference between an analyst and a, uh, and a case officer at the CIA. I will spend uh, that time because I think it's, it's passing on, passing on information. And I, I believe it does uh, help our country. I'm not that generous in other, in other areas, but if somebody wants career advice, I'll do it. Where I wanna turn your question around and maybe it leads to discussion, it, and it relates to a point that Colonel Baker made earlier. The problem of the media is how we're perceived around the world. Is if you go to the Middle East, you go to other places, what do they think about America? We've eroded the pillars of what made us great. Our economic strength, our adherence to democratic values, a functioning democracy, our willingness to work in alliances, that many of these areas of American greatness in the post, in the let's say the post-Cold War era, even the Cold War. Think, think about the admiration that countries had for uh, Herbert Walker Bush in putting together that coalition. Think of the admiration that countries had when Kennedy made his speech in Germany, when he said he's a Berliner too. Think about the optimism about Barack Obama getting elected. I don't see that kind of projection of American values, even under Biden. I mean, Biden for many is just a relief that he's not Trump, but I don't, I don't find him to be inspiring in the way that those other parents are. So this is a, a long process of improving, I mean, improving our country and improving how we're perceived around the world to get people to work with us if possible. Well, what I have perceived is that uh, young people are kind of the leadership of the United States on issues like gun safety, climate crisis, political participation, equity in the workplace, jobs and minimum wage related issues around. So I see young people as in the leadership in the political life of our nation. And so that gives me, of course, a lot of hope and energy. But I also have this odd job where our organization hosts hundreds and hundreds of people from other countries who want to come five who want to come from Belarus and study community building through winter sports. Okay, Minnesota's kind of specialized in community building through winter sports, so I can see. But what I'm experiencing in my work when I'm part of the citizens group trying to convince the world to say, yes, let's bring a World's Fair to Minnesota and let's gather in Minneapolis and St. Paul and Bloomington in the summer of 2027, um, people have that feeling. And I'll have uh, this opportunity sometime to tell this story more elaborately, but I went and spoke to the ambassador from um, Lithuania because we needed his vote for our bid to host an expo. And he, he had a lot of concerns about things happening in the US and he talked about them. But then he said, come with me. And he took me out his door of his uh, the embassy in Paris, France. And there's a giant Lithuanian flag. And he said, see that flag? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's giant. He said, that flag went into hiding the day Hitler seized Lithuania. And we brought that flag back out and began carrying it again when the Americans liberated us 
after the Second World War, in the Second World War. And he said, you're going to have our support. You will always have our support. And he kind of slapped me on the back and sent, my, sent me on my way, which is not to say that things don't change over time, but in a nation that is an immigrant nation, which is the United States, and in a nation that has been through global issues like the First World War and the Second World War and many others, there comes a kind of set of back and forth relationships that we can all build on. And especially, um, you know, not young in the way that I was 25 years ago, but when the world sees the change in what's allowed for women in the United States who were denied all opportunity, the change in the Voting Rights Act. And I mean, so the evolution of issues, human rights issues and others will continue. But the thing that you said, Professor um, Ratson, that's so important is we really want our best and brightest to want to be in public service, wherever and however that might be. And um, we have the opportunity to help encourage that. And we have the opportunity to give those um, professions respect and, you know, proper, uh, you know, training and all that. But it is our good benefit, the three of us, that we live in Minnesota, a place that's very global-minded and welcoming. I mean, we, we have the largest number of refugees per capita any place in the country and all of that kind of thing. But as you point out, we can't take that for granted. We can't take how other people perceive it. We can't take you know, the next generations for granted. And so your uh, experience in life and your perspectives help give all of us, everybody who's watching today, all the people who will watch this because it's always archived, but in your daily work and life and in the work of Global Minnesota, we have the opportunity to bring forth perspectives and history and I understand, uh, Colonel Baker, you'll be the featured speaker at the post 9-11 roundtable. Minnesota's uh, has uh, roundtable discussions as a Civil War roundtable. There's a World War I roundtable, World War II um, coming up maybe the 28th of this month. I'm, I might have that date wrong, but I'll make sure it's on the Global Minnesota page. Um, uh, and the Military um, Historical Society of Minnesota's webpage um, under exhibits, under post 9-11, under videos. Uh, there's an extended interview uh, with Colonel Baker that's fantastic. There's a number of extended interviews. So there are ways for people to uh, hear more, to get more information. But I want to make sure that in the short time we have left, uh, that Professor Ratson and Colonel Baker, uh, a message that you would have for those young people that are watching it now or will see this. Some people use these in their classroom. Um, Great Decisions is in high schools and in other places as well. Uh, what would be your uh, message uh, to that younger audience um, as you think about the things that are 
the, the message you most would like to transmit to that next generation who we will be handing off this baton to relatively soon. Mark, I, I absolutely would, would think of two things. First, do not underestimate the subtle power of the United States. And when you represent the US uh, at home and especially abroad, do not think that you are just one person. You, you, you move forward with that name tape representing um, an ideology, representing an idea that's sometimes aspirational for others uh, in the couple hundred other nations around the globe, but do not underestimate the power of representing the United States and doing so in service. My favorite basketball coach is Phil Jackson. What Phil Jackson did in Chicago and in Los Angeles is he got superstars who had individual statistics to play for something bigger than their own accomplishments. He got Michael to play for championships. He got Shaquille and Kobe to play together to get championships. And there's a lesson in that for our country is that there is something quite satisfying when you're doing a project for your country and you know it's not for your own interests, that that ends up being rewarding. I, I think of my Justice Department colleagues that they still, even when they're making millions, they still look back on that time is the best time. And they refer to the Justice Department as the department, as if there is no other department. This, this is a lawyer's place. And I, if the young people will come and talk to us because we're all looking for meaning and validation and you get it there to, to, to fly the Secretary of Defense, whatever it is, to be on Air Force One. Those are great experiences. I remember a person I worked for as an intern that had pictures on Air Force One handing a memo to three presidents at various times. That, that inspired me. The, the second lesson, it relates to what you were saying, is if you want to feel good about what the United States has done in the world, there are some places to go to, some ambassadors, so to speak, that are not necessarily from the Middle East. If you go and talk to Hungarians about what the United States means to them, you're much more likely to leave that conversation with a smile than talking with somebody from Iraq Iran or Saudi Arabia. If you go and talk to somebody that is from Poland and ask them the same question, you'll get a similar reaction. And you identified another part of the world is that we still are a force of good, that our system, this experiment in, experiment in democracy is a great one and that we all owe it even each day to renew the experiment. It's not just something that works on autopilot. It, I, Elon Musk is not going to figure out how to do a self-driving democracy. No one will. <laughs> it's up to everyone through these kind of conversations that your group facilitates. You do, Colonel Baker, with other groups. We're we're not changing the world, but we may change the perspective of one person. That's important. Amen. Well, and that's the the kind of wisdom of person to person, whether it's sister cities or it's home hosting. I want to uh, thank again our experts, our panelists, Colonel Baker and Professor Ratson. I also want to thank all of you Minnesotans. Uh, some of you uh, 
last uh, two years ago, um, Global Minnesota was contacted by the Iranian Student Association at the campus, the University of Minnesota. They were feeling very isolated, very threatened, uh, very unwelcome. Uh, we had the idea that connecting those students with home hosts, some of our members who are uh, you know, very anxious to be in contact with young people and to host and all of that. And just being able to put people together. Yes, it's been a COVID period and that's had to be Zoom. But I think that we all somewhere in our hearts know it's that making that personal connection. Um, and that's uh, one of the things that we try to pay attention to and advance here at Global Minnesota. There's a group of programs coming up, um, some that are set. Uh, Brazil and the United States will be looking at some of the trade and bilateral opportunities, a partnership with the Minnesota-Brazil uh, Chamber of Commerce and the Brazilian Honorary Consul here, July 8th at 10 in the morning, central time in the US. Um, July 16th, a heartbeat of Iran, one of our book club conversations. Um, we're, uh, oh, no, July 16th is our um, Lunch and Learn with the Mandela Fellows. We have uh, always each year a group of young leaders from Africa, and uh, we'll be introducing them all and, and to that public. I mentioned the book club on Heartbeat of Iran, August 4th, we're working on the time. We'll be hosting um, in a webinar, the ambassador uh, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, she's a very interesting new leader young leader, and um, then in the fall, she'll come for an in-person second visit, so that'll be important. And um, we'll have one of our Sustainable Development Goal Roundtables, uh, looks like July 27th over the noon hour, but you can get the specifics and sign up if you'd like at the Global Minnesota uh, website. Uh, so I wanna thank again our partners, uh, great decisions, um, partnerships that we have. I want to thank our special guests today and uh, look forward to hearing you again, Colonel Baker, at that post 9-11 roundtable uh, coming up soon and look forward to seeing you again soon, Professor Ratson. Thank you viewers everywhere and thank you to our technical team, Carolina and, and Olaf, for helping make sure today is uh, experience that both people saw from around the world and now they'll be able to to see it on the Global Minnesota YouTube channel going forward. Thank you again and goodbye.